Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Today's episode is also presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you wherever you are in the world via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in the class just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you have been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home with Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's POD, P-O-D, at sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected, for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. We're also brought to you by State Bags. State Bags makes beautifully well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State hand-delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. But their commitment goes beyond simply a material donation. State Bags has your back. And part of that commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you are traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com. Using the code POD, that's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD, P-O-D, at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. And finally, we are brought to you by Hugh Kitchen. Hugh is a family-founded chocolate and snacking company focused on creating products that match ultra-simple ingredients with unbeatable taste. Built on a strong mission to help people get back to human, Hugh only uses simple, real, and responsibly sourced ingredients. Hugh obsessively vets every ingredient to unite unbeatable taste with unmatched simplicity. They go beyond what is easy and expected to ensure that their products and practices are ethical and put both humanity and the human body first. All of Hugh's products are gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, and aren't heavily processed. Use code POD for 15% off your next purchase at HughKitchen.com. That's code POD, P-O-D, for 15% off at HughKitchen.com. And find out why Hugh helps people get back to human. Health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rotersheimer, your host. Today's topic is so important. We're going to examine the idea of staying in a corporate job in the name of safety and security while delaying work that you want to do or are passionate about. We're also going to take a look at the American healthcare system as compared to other healthcare systems and see if we have certain biases or misunderstandings about how it works in other countries. My guest is Miles Wakeham, and he runs the BeUnconstrained.com website, as well as the Unconstrained podcast. Thanks, Miles, for joining me today as we were trading some messages back and forth about your experiences. I have a feeling we're going to have a decent amount in common, but can you start us off by giving some of your background and how you've come up with your philosophies as far as finances and as far as 
being in control of your own destiny. Okay. Well, sure. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the program. I appreciate it. Um, as people will hear from my accent, I am from Australia originally. Um, I grew up in Australia uh, in the 70s and 80s and of the, our past century. I feel old now. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s now, so I kind of have had an interesting you know, set of stories or chapters and a long story to tell. I grew up at a time in Australia when uh, there were very, very high interest rates, and so nobody had anything that they couldn't have paid cash for. Uh, back in the 70s and the 80s when I kind of had my formative years when I was a teenager, um, interest rates were in the sort of 18 to 20% category. So at that time, if you didn't own your home, you really wanted to because nobody wanted to be paying uh, interest. And, and back in those days, and I, I think it's actually true today, uh, people never had mortgages. They had fixed interest rates. Everything was variable. So if the central banks jumped to the rates, uh, everyone started paying through the nose. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. And so you didn't have anything you couldn't afford to have. Uh, people lived in smaller homes and had one car, not two, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of grew up in the thick of that. So my um, underpinnings of my thoughts about responsibility and life and all those things came from that sort of genesis. So um, I was an unusual kid. I was one of those kids that had a paper round when I was like 10 years old, but unlike every other kid that had some sort of little, you know, part-time job like that, I turned mine into a an empire of business and ended up having many paper rounds that spanned the whole area and became the, the king of throwing newspapers in my neighborhood. And then um, I guess by the time I went to high school and and I was uh, going through that experience, I got kind of halfway through it and started realizing that everything that I was being taught, and, and albeit, you know, I was a wet behind the ears kid, but everything I was being taught, I couldn't apply to the real world that I was experiencing out there. And so I um, stumbled into technology uh, in the mid to late 1970s because of some friends who had put me onto things like CB radios and, and I was a bit nerdy. So I kind of learned about electronics and that turned into buying one of the very first personal computers that ever was invented. And um, for some reason I connected with it and it became my passion and I became one of those nerdy programmer kids in their bedroom. And um, by the time I guess I was – in the last year of high school, I went to my parents and I said, you know, I'm sitting on a gold mine here. And they said, well, what do you mean, kid? And I said, well, you know, I've learnt this this thing called the computer and I seem to be the only guy in town who knows how to program them. And uh, I think I should be out there creating a business that does this and I don't need to finish high school. And despite my parents being shocked, <laughs> they actually agreed which was really weird because I went to an expensive private school. I was not, you know, at the at the local high school. I was at an expensive school. So for some reason, I managed to convince them to not to not graduate high school and not to go to university, but to go out and start a software company, which I did. And within, I guess, probably five or six years of that, um, I had built one of the largest software companies in my city as a kid. And I was writing software for 
military subcontracting uh, defense groups and the attorney general's department in our city and forensic science labs and big Fortune 50 type corporations, this wet behind the ears kid was responsible for writing software for all of these these things. And, and that ended up turning into building a business because I was always very business driven. And by about the age of 24, I sold my first company. I didn't make a huge amount of money, but I really had so much in the way of experience from that. Um, Just as the rest of my friends that I grew up with were kind of graduating college, I had already built and sold a business and I was on to the next thing. Um, And that's kind of where I started. So from that, I, at the age of 25, Um, was in Hawaii uh, after we sold the business. I took some time off. I went to Hawaii as a a tourist and just, you know, bummed around there for a while. And uh, I met this girl and we fell in love as, you you know, 25-year-old kids do. And next thing you know, I'm in Los Angeles and I got married. And (laughs) as it it happened, um, it was one of those things where I couldn't leave because they were processing – uh, all these immigration documents um, from the marriage, and you weren't able to leave. So I was kind of stuck there with no money, a suitcase of clothes, and um, no right to work or anything. So I had to start. Well, eventually, I got I got a right to work. I got a right to go out looking for work, and I started from absolutely nothing and hustled my way through most of that. And long and the short of it is, six years later, I was a millionaire. So. I uh, did that. So that was kind of a bit of luck and a bit of a lot of hard work starting from nothing in a foreign country, which I, I really didn't understand the culture as much as it was anything like Australia. Let me ask just a couple of quick questions. So Los Angeles, because that's where your wife's from, or how did you guys pick Los Angeles? She lived in LA and she was in Hawaii on vacation. I was in Hawaii on vacation. We just met and uh, kept in contact. And then I ended up coming back to see her, which for me was to land in LAX. So that's where she was. And that's where we ended up uh, spending six years living. The work that you started doing was also in software at that time? Yeah, um, it was. But it was really funny because when you come to the country as an immigrant and you've got no work experience in the US, you don't get squat. I mean, you can go, I must have interviewed at like 18 different companies for jobs. And I said, you know, my last gig, I just wrote a, a billing system for a $5 billion submarine contract in Australia that was issuing $50 million a month in invoices to the Navy. And people look at me and go, oh, you're lying, kid. And I'm like, no, no, seriously, that's what I just did. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe a word of it. It wasn't until I got some crappy job in the States and I was able to prove what I could do that all of a sudden everything started to fall my way. So that was, that was tricky. That, that was quite tricky. And I had to take a lot of risks back then. Um, so the most noteworthy risk, <laughs> which was really unusual, was that after I'd uh, done a little bit of work and people started to get to know what, what I was doing, I had a, a headhunter call me up because I'd obviously used them to try and find work unsuccessfully. And they said, well, you know, there's this startup in Southern California out in Thousand Oaks that are looking for people. And um, would you be interested in going over there and interviewing? It's a, a six-month work contract. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, all right. I'll have a look at it. So I turn up to this place and literally the interview was in one of those mobile trailers in a parking lot, <laughs> right? Like one of these portable office trailer things. 
I go yeah. in, I sit down and we're talking and I have no idea what they do and they didn't know much about me. But after a while, we got to know each other and and there were like two or three other people in the group that I was going to work in that were in uh, technology. And um, in the end, they said, sure, look, we'll hire you to be our develop software development manager. And I said, sure, you know, start up. What's, what, what could go wrong here, right? Well, <laughs> little did I know that I just, I was the, um, one of the very early, I'm uh, not, not employees because I was a contractor back then, but one of the very, very early team members of Amgen, the world's largest biotechnology corporation. I had uh, walked in about um, seven months before they had approval by the FDA for their first ever uh, product. And this little company, which was in this little trailer <laughs> in the parking lot that were actually building buildings because they got some money from some investors, um, ended up producing a product that, that 12 months later had sold $3.8 billion on the market. And uh, I was one of the early guys. So, of course, what happened is after the six months of the contract was up, they said to me, um, we want to offer you a job. And I'm like, I don't like jobs. I don't want a job, <laughs> right? <laughs> jobs suck. Yep. I don't want a job. But they said, listen, we'll make it really cool. We'll pay for 20% of a down payment of a house. And I'm going, okay, so, so you got my interest now, right? Because here I am, just married, young family, want to buy a home. No one can afford to buy a house in Southern California at that age. And these guys are going to give me 20% of the deposit so I could get a mortgage, I could buy a home. I'm like, deal. <laughs> so I took the deal and they said, oh, look, it's customary for us to give you these things called stock options. And I'm like, I don't even know what the hell they are. I have no idea. Just whatever. I just want the house. So they gave me the job and it was doing the same thing I was doing. So it wasn't like a big deal. And they give me this ton of stock options. This is before they got approval on their first drug. Well, suffice it to say, five years later, I ended up going back to Australia because my mother got ill and I had to go back and take care of her. And so my wife and I sold everything we had in the States and moved back to Australia, and I moved back as a millionaire. So I was 32 years old. I converted all of the US dollars to Australian currency, which was worth a lot more then, and I came back and I didn't have to work another day in my life ever again. And I thought I was on you know, top of the mountain, right? I thought everything had come my way. I had made it big, you know, look at me, I'm a success, all that crap. <laughs> well, <laughs> the end result of it is when you go from being a, a young, energetic person with some skills in a particular area and you, and you do that and people recognize it and they reward you for it, um, that's kind of an addictive thing. And it's one thing to say that, you are uh, pursuing the right of financial independence and you are, you know, I mean, back then, this was 1995, I think. Um, there was no such thing as the FIRE movement back then, but I was a 32-year-old financially independent retiree. And I thought, this is great. And so for the first maybe three, four, five months, it was fun. I, you know, we bought a home and I built the, you know, I did all the things in the house I wanted to do all these projects, all that sort of stuff. And then one day my wife left me and it was like, what? <laughs> and the, the reason was that she couldn't see a future. 
And I guess I didn't really know my future anyway, but I was this I can do anything sort of kid that could go out and try and take on the world. And I didn't have any problem with that, but I couldn't communicate that very well. And she felt that that was the end. And so she left and it was really weird. It was like this weird, dark experience. So I, uh, and I, and uh, anybody out there who's been through a divorce kind of knows what I'm talking about, but I was in this ha- this house that we'd bought empty I was sitting around in the dark, depressed. It was a really black, dark time. And I remember it was towards the end of the year in 1995. And, uh, you know, my friends that I grew up with were still there. So they had sort of, I wouldn't say they'd rallied around me so much, but they were there for some support and everything. So I went through that whole motion and and my mom was, you know, I had to move her into a assisted living facility she had dementia and so she was not doing very well herself but I couldn't look after her and I certainly couldn't do it on my own and so well in the end I um I had a pretty pretty depressing time and I remember that a friend of mine who I grew up with um came over and said to me listen after Christmas day between Christmas and like the first week of New Year's, we're all going to go to a, a state in Australia called Queensland, which is up on the northeastern coast. It's a tropical beach-laden place. It's beautiful. And um, it's about a two- or three-day drive to get there. He said, look, why don't you come with us? You don't need to be sitting around here wallowing in this dark, depressing place you found yourself in. Come with us, and we'll go to Queensland, hang out on the beach, drink some beers, have a good old time. We'll have New Year's Eve up there. It'll be great. And I said, yeah, all right, whatever. So we did. And the day after Christmas, they picked me up from the house and me in a suitcase and we shot off on this epic road trip for a couple of days, got up there, had a good time, had New Year's Eve up there, left the day after New Year's Eve. It was about a two-day drive. And so we're driving back and the first day went fine and we got through to the end of it. And by the second day, we started off in the morning and I took the first shift driving and I drove through until about noon. And then my buddy, it was in the car, it was me, he, him and his girlfriend, the three of us in this car. So uh, I, we had lunch. I gave him the keys. I said, right, your turn. I'm sitting in the back seat. I'm going to read a book. So off he goes. We drive for about 20 minutes. We're in the outback in Australia, right? We're in, there's nothing out there. It's just road, right. nothing. And, um, I'm just reading my book, and all of a sudden I hear the sound of water. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> Australia's an arid country. There ain't no water here. I look up, and I swear we were in a lake. That's what I thought it was. And he had hit this water really fast because he had crested over a road, come down the other side, and hit this water. Now, I found out later what had happened was there was a flash flood and it had covered the road and we had hit it at about probably 80 mile an hour. Well, if you've ever sat by a river and thrown a rock across river, you know how it skips. Well, that that was our car, skipped over this water. And I'm, and and literally in these moments, you know, they're, they're kind of times where time slows right down and everything happens like frame by frame in your mind. And I remember, I remember it vividly. And right up to the point I was saying in my mind, um, the guy driving his name was Lindsay. And I said, Lindsay, 
what don't lose control of the car. That was what I was sort of thinking. And then everything just went black. So I wake up and there's this guy with the jaws of life on the side. Now I'm on the left-hand side of the car in the back seat. So I find myself in the back seat, but the front seat had been crushed on top of me. And then on top of the front seat is Lindsay's girlfriend. And there's this guy with these jaws of life on the left side, ripping the, the metal of the car the, out to try to pull me out. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what the heck? Now, I didn't feel a lot of pain. Not then. I did afterwards, but I didn't feel it then. But I looked up at the guy and I said to him, listen, I'm okay. Get her. She's sitting on top of me, right? And he, he didn't respond. And I said, no, dude, get her. Get her. He didn't respond. Anyway, they pulled me out and they put me on a stretcher and put me in an ambulance and you know, whisked us away to the closest country town that they could find. And I realized right there and then she was dead. So I had woken up with a dead body on top of me and she had broken her neck. And what had happened is the car had had front, had collided with cars waiting on the other side of the river to cross and it had gone head on into a uh, like an RV and then spun around and I had it sort of like whipped whipped the car around at high speed and slammed the side of the car into the oncoming traffic, which is where I was sitting. So I was extremely lucky to be alive. But what had, ca- what had happened after I came out of a six-day induced medical coma and they airlifted us back to our home city, I had come to realize that I had broken my femur, shattered it, uh, and my entire shoulder from the shoulder all the way down to the elbow had been completely destroyed on my left side. So I was lucky I still had the use of my fingers. Um, so that was good, but the bones were completely destroyed. Well, they put me into a medical um, a public hospital in Australia, which is a – we can talk about the politics of healthcare about this. But, but here's a guy who's just been divorced – and now I'm in a life, uh, you know, threatened uh, intensive care situation. And uh, they, you know, they patched me up kind of military style. It was the best they could do. And um, then what happened was because my friend's girlfriend had died in the accident, his parent, her parents were absolutely destroyed. I mean, I, I completely understand that. I'm a parent myself, so I know. I know how that – well, I don't know how that must feel. I can imagine how it must feel. Well, they were blaming him because he was driving the car, and so they had they had uh, filed a, a negligent homicide case on him. And because there was a criminal case on him as the driver, the insurance company, which was actually government provided, that was supposed to cover me as a person in the back seat. I mean, I had no control of the situation. They literally refused to pay anything. And so I got in there, got patched up so I didn't die, and the hospital, even though I was supposed to be eligible for government health care, the hospital turfed me out and sent me home. I could barely get out of bed because they had, A, no money, and, B, this was a criminal case and they didn't want a part of it. And so I went out to the private, what was the private medical market in Australia, and nobody would touch me because of all of this stigma that was surrounding this whole accident. 
And so in the end, I just was told by a friend of mine who actually worked for an orthopedic surgeon, um, he sort of off, off, you know, off, off the side told me, listen, he said, I think you're stuck with this for the rest of your life. You're not going to be able to use your arm in a meaningful way. You luckily still have the use of your hands so you can type, but there's no way you're going to be able to lift your arm up. You're kind of stuck with this. This is your lot. Suck it up. Deal with it. So I said, okay, well, that's how it was. Well, tell this story. <laughs> Years later, um, I ended up getting remarried. I met a girl in Australia and we got married and we had a daughter. And then um, in about the year 1999, I get a phone call from one of the guys who helped, you know, with me. We were kind of the original Amgen guys. He calls me up and he said, would you like a consulting gig in the States for six weeks? And I said, you know what? I'll take anything right now because I was wiped out financially. I had no – my divorce cost me half of everything I had. We had bought a home prior to that that uh, my ex-wife wanted half of and I ended up mortgaging half of the home to pay her out. So I now was carrying a mortgage around. I had little or no income there wasn't a great deal of business going on at the time in Australia, and I was carrying all of the costs of this medical uh, stuff that was all on me while I was trying to sue the state government for them to pay for it. So I was broke. I went from Mr. I retired at 32 and living you know, on the top of the mountain thinking I'm a great success to being destitute. I mean, just went from one to another, just from a series of events that I had little, little or no control over. The picture you're painting is learning, I assume, that not to take anything for granted, that things can change in literally the blink of an eye. I mean, that's what you're describing in the car accident, certainly, and things that you don't plan for can happen. So I imagine that probably is what is really shaping your outlook, or at least from that point on. Yeah, this is the, this is form formative because what happens is you – you end up in this situation where you can't take anything for granted. And what ended up happening was when I did come over to LA to do this consulting gig, I discovered that the dot-com boom was on and people like me were valued much, much higher than I ever expected. So I ended up working and I said to my, my wife uh, back in Australia on the phone, I said, listen, we, you need to come over here now and we need to start, you know, maybe spend 12 months in the States while this – this gold rush is going on so we can make some money um, and then, you know, we'll be good. So she said, okay. So she gets our daughter who was like 18 months at the time and her and off on a plane and she comes over and meet her at the airport. We set ourselves up in sort of one of these Oakwood apartments there and then eventually I'm working and then we found a place to rent for a year and everything was fine except that now – I'm a, an immigrant coming in. I don't have any credit history. So everything we bought, we had to pay cash for. Um, I mean, my credit history was like six years old, so it didn't apply. I couldn't go and get a credit card or get furniture. So it was all cash. So every dollar I made, I went and bought a couch or I went and bought some dining room table. Or a, I remember we had to buy a car and I had to pay $35,000 cash to buy a freaking car <laughs> because nobody would give me a loan. I, I guess the silver lining is that's a good habit to get into, <laughs> whether it's required or not, right? It sure is. I was driving around in this beat-up $300 junker, turning up to Amgen, the company that I was one of the original founders of. Not, no, I shouldn't say that as a founder. I was an original team member of. 
um, and being paid a ton of money because they brought me back as a contract, as a consultant again in their la- in this latter season. I was turning up in this junker of a car and everyone's looking at me going, we're paying you all this money. Can't you get a decent car? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it runs. Does it matter? It gets me here. That's all you need, right? But I started realizing the social stigma that was behind, you know, living in a big house and having a nice car and all this, this, this baggage that comes with the, um, the American experience. And so I, I fell into it, right? I went and bought a big house because I was paying a ton of money in taxes because I had nothing to, no expenses to claim that I could. And I bought a nice car and I got, you know, and I thought this was great. I'm living the American dream now. And so, you know, got it all going and everything's fine. And then one day about 12, 18 months later, I get called into the office of the, uh, like the division head of the group that we were working with and me and a bunch of the other contractors all went in and he sits down and he says, listen, boys, I'm sorry to tell you this. But the CFO has decided that there won't be any more contracts here. We're sending all the work to Bangalore. I'm like, are you are you serious, dude? I just bought a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar home, and I've got all this. And what are you doing to me here? I, you know, come on, seriously. Where's the loyalty? Well, there ain't no loyalty in business. And you know what? I'm on the street again. And I said to my wife, I said, okay. Well, we've been through worse, right? We can get through this. So we did. We sold the house very quickly. We actually didn't lose any money on it, surprisingly. I I went and got a U-Haul. We took all of the furniture and everything that we'd gained over the the last year or so, and we drove east and we settled in Scottsdale, Arizona. And for the price of the, the money that I had from the house that we sold in Australia that I used as a down payment, California, we were able to use that and buy a home in Scottsdale at the time. And what was left of the mortgage on that home was less than my property tax payments in California. So I ended up in Arizona again with nothing other than just my skills. And at that point, from about then another six years, and I was a multimillionaire. So then what happens? 2008. <laughs> With all the money that we've made, I was buying rental properties. So I was like way over my head on debt load with rental properties and 2008 happens. But again, <laughs> funny story again, I've been through worse than this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been through divorce. I've almost been killed. I've almost been destroyed by this corporation that I thought was on my side. And now I find myself in 2008 cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> this is easy, man. <laughs> right. So I, I, I just, I hustled like crazy and I took what money we had saved and I made sure that we were always okay with an upside down property. And we got that cleared out. And six to 12 months later, Everybody I knew hadn't done that and they were all being foreclosed and bankrupted and and back in those days they had these like robo um, auction sales of properties that people had defaulted on and I still had a ton of money left. So I went down to the county courthouse and I sat in the chair with everybody else and I saw the properties and I researched them beforehand. As they came up, I bought that one and I bought that one and I bought that one and I paid, I don't know, uh, 20 cents on the dollar for these properties and I bought 20 something of them 
<laughs> and uh, I brought him back and my wife and I decided that our our new adventure was going to be to refurbish the, uh, refurb these properties. So I got to know a lot of Mexican laborers and uh, became great friends with them. I mean, after all, we're all immigrants and we flipped all these properties into rentals and I've never worked a day in my life ever since. I, I live on the rents. Um, in the middle of that, I learned how distasteful banks are. I was on this sort of anti-banking regime and uh, a guy that I knew from Australia, uh, not directly, well, actually I'd met him a couple of times, but I only knew him kind of indirectly. He Back in the days when I got into computers in the 80s, there used to be these computer clubs and it was like all the nerds got together and swapped their techniques and stuff. And we had one in Adelaide where I was from. There was another one in Melbourne. And we kept in contact with these guys and periodically we'd go and see them. They'd come and see us. And I met this this guy uh, by the name of Julian Assange. And uh, next thing you know, um, I find out what he's been up to ever since then. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I know that name. <laughs> you know that name, right. And so one of the things that um, – I, I hadn't been communicating with him directly, but I've been sort of watching from afar because I knew the guy and uh, he was trying to fund his uh, server hosting that he was doing in Sweden or Iceland or wherever the hell it was at the time. And um, he needed money and every bank had shut him down because of all the things that he was doing, exposing all these national secrets and whatever. So he, they couldn't, you couldn't PayPal the guy, you couldn't visa, you couldn't send him a you know, wires, nothing. And I looked at this and I went, you know, these banks are horrible because look what they've just done to all my friends with their properties and this, it's disgusting. And then he had mentioned this thing called Bitcoin. And I said to myself, you know, that's, let me look into this thing. This is in 2010. By about 2011, I got into Bitcoin and I bought a lot of it. And I did it because I wanted to be able to pay people who were in other parts of the world without using the banking system. Um, I had a guy who was working for me who was in Bangladesh and uh, I couldn't PayPal him because it was, they didn't have a reciprocal banking agreement with the US. So we used Bitcoin. And uh, in order for me to have it, because back in those days we didn't have a Coinbase or anything like that, there were exchanges, but I used this one in Japan called Mt. Gox, MT Gox. And I bought a ton of Bitcoin over there because I had to wire the money. So you'd wire over, you know, a couple of thousand dollars and I was buying Bitcoin at about seven bucks each. And I just hold it in this exchange. And eventually um, I ended up pulling it out of that exchange and thank God I did because they collapsed. But when I did, I put it in one in Hong Kong because they had a like a debit card that was tied to the exchange. And uh, he got one of these debit cards and he, I could pay him by sending him Bitcoin and he could withdraw it into his local currency at the local ATM. So he was happy and I was happy. Anyway, I'm sitting on this pile of Bitcoin and before my eyes, I see it go from seven, $7. So I think I bought some at seven, some at 11 and sort of sat around there for a while. And I watched it over the next few years go to uh, 20,000. And I'm, when it went over, I think like over 15, I said to my wife, this, this is nuts. We're sitting on this fortune of money. I don't think this can ever last much more than this. I'm going to sell it. So in late 
2017, early 2018, we sold it all, paid a massive tax bill and sat back and said, oh, okay, I guess that chapter's over and then watched it crash down to 3,000 and went, phew, picked a good one on this case. And and my life ever since has been one of just telling the story and dealing with my medical issues and, you know, just understanding this extreme uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the, the ups, the downs, the, the, the ro- roller coaster ride that I've been living um, from the last number of decades, and I'm tired now. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> so I- I'm just chilling now, right? I don't <laughs> want to do any more of this. Well, hitting the, the Bitcoin part real quick, what I like about your story is you found out about it from a utility standpoint. You, you needed an option because of the issues you were having with the banks. And then afterwards, of course, you're keeping up on places where your money's at. And lo and behold, of course, it goes way, way up. Whereas I feel like most people, when you hear people talk about Bitcoin, it's it's like they're just bragging to brag about no different than finding a stock that, that goes up. Like I bought Amazon when it was way, way down. So it's cool that you had a purpose for it uh, before it became uh, more of a investment avenue than than something that's a tool uh, in this case to to be paying somebody. And even what you're talking about for your real estate ventures, a little bit the same way. You had the issue or potential issue of 2008 and what to be able to do with it and just needed the utility of buying buying properties and so on and and surviving. So from my standpoint, I, I guess I feel like that's a better story than hearing somebody brag about Hey, I invested my money here and this is what happened. This is what happened. At least there's a life story to go along with it that people maybe could hang on to a little bit. You bring up a very good point. I mean, I, I was a year or so ago, I started trying to chronicle and document and codify what I'd learned. Um, the main reason was my daughter was graduating college. She went to uh, University of Arizona, did a business major. And she was, in the last year or last couple of years of her college degree, she would come to me and, and look, you know, no one wants to listen to dad, right? <laughs> what does dad know? You know, <laughs> right. I'm going to go and find it out yeah. on my own. I get that. I was the same kid, right? But when, when she came to me and was asking for advice, like, what do I do? You know, I said, I honestly thought, I don't really know because I was raised in a different culture in a different time with a different set of values and they were not this social mantra like you know you go to school you graduate you get a good job you work hard and you retire at 65 you know my story was completely atypical of that and to make matters worse um my own father's story was kind of one of those interesting recycling of that because he was one of those people who subscribed to that, go to school, graduate, get a good job. He worked for 40 years for the same corporation who ended up at 65. They gave him a gold watch and and his, you know, pension or whatever it was back then and off he went into the sunset. Well, he died at 67. And when I went back, because I was the guy who had to bury him, and when I went back, to look at his story and to look at what I discovered and to try to understand and learn from it, I started realizing um, he got, he was working for a company that made roofing products that contained asbestos. And what ended up happening was the corporation never told anybody about the carcinogenic danger of what he had. 
and he ended up getting uh, lung cancer, but that wasn't what killed him. What killed him was a heart attack that was brought on by the fact he was always coughing and, you know, putting stress on himself from that. But I could never pin down why he would subscribe to giving up his life to these counterparties, to these, you know, these corporations that never did right by him. And I know from my own experience how that works, and I know from his life experience how it worked, and I looked a bit deeper into it, and I discovered that this is not an uncommon situation. There was a a study made by Boeing, the big aircraft manufacturer, many years ago, and uh, the study showed when they were analyzing how much money they had to fund their pension programs for their retirees, they, they discovered that people who retired at the age of 55 had an average life expectancy of about 83 years old. And th- these are US males. Um, they did the exact same study on people who retired at 65. And again, you know, they're trying to work out how much money do we have to fund our pension program with. And they discovered a shocking statistic that people who retired at the age of 65 only lasted an average of 18 months after the date of their retirement. And when I heard that, I'm like, nah, this can't be right, can it? And then I looked at my own father's story and I'm like, you know what? It is right. And the funny thing is I was telling this very same story to a group, uh, a financial independence group uh, last year in Phoenix. And in the audience, as I'm telling the story, is a lady who was the one of the CFOs at Honeywell. Honeywell Corporation's a big defense contractor here in Phoenix. And after I did the, the, the speech and, you know, finished up, she came up to me and she introduced herself and said, you know, what she was doing. And she said, um, we did the exact same study that Boeing did on this and we came up with the identical numbers. If you've subscribed to the social mantra you go to school, you get, you know, you work hard, you graduate, you get a good job, you retire at 65, you're screwed <laughs> statistically, right? And, and what's worse about this was that I was a kid who never even finished high school and yet I managed to get through this at a very young age and I managed to get my own independence at a very young age and I had to get it back and I did, but eventually I had the time to be able to, look upon life from a thousand foot view. I wasn't having to be in that job every day and fight traffic and work in the cubicle. I was able to detach from that and look down and I could see it clearly and everybody around me could not. And when I was trying to say to them, you know, there's got to be a better way. You've got to be able to live a meaningful and and purposeful life without having to sell your soul out to a, th- to a counterparty to do it, knowing that they have not got your back and that your long-term viability here is questionable at best. And if I can't explain this to you and my own father's story can't explain this to you and the Boeing study is getting all this negative publicity in the financial industry because they want you to be paying your money in on your 401k and your IRA because that's how they make money, and nobody's willing to say this, somebody has to. And that became kind of my calling. For the audience, uh, right before we pressed record, I mentioned I had a feeling you and I were going to uh, definitely overlap in our uh, life view. Now, I had a very different path to where I'm at now, but you are absolutely speaking my language uh, as far as the 
quote, standard age to retire and the ideal path. Uh, of course, anybody would say long gone are the days where you graduate and you work for the same company. And as you said, the gold watch, so on and so forth. Uh, luckily for me, uh, my dad, if nothing else, recognized that my grandfather, his dad, uh, died of a heart attack very young. And so I think his perspective was he didn't want to be that where he is working till the very end and, and misses out on all the, the family stuff and so on. So he had a focus on early retirement. He was able to retire at 52, um, really with just having some of that time and being able to travel and so on. Um, now up into that point, he was, he was definitely in sort of a, a standard job and things like that. So at least I had that as a model, um, to strive for, at least from the age standpoint, but Yes, you're absolutely right as far as the corporations and things like that are concerned. One of the mantras that I go by is I say, be loyal to people, but never to a company. And it's almost like you need to recognize that the employees, you're all in it together. And of course, I think anybody knows when you're working in your corporate job, there are people that you can trust and rely on and are hard workers, smart people, et cetera, et cetera. Hold on to those people. Keep them in your network. Uh, but you don't need to keep them in your network relative to wherever you ran into them, i.e. the company. Because if you haven't uh, been in the situation like you described of contractors being cut or general cuts, so on and so forth, you absolutely know somebody that has. And it can happen at any time for whatever reasons that you don't necessarily see. And yeah, I almost think of like a, a for what Um Actually, a, a real quick story from this week. I was in a seminar uh, it, at my work and it was about what do you define as success? And then it was also talking about burnout, which of course is a big topic right now with COVID going on and obviously all the job losses and so on. And um, when it got to my turn, and let's just say there were different answers from everybody else, I said, what is success? Success is coaching my child's soccer team <laughs> and being done, you know, at, at, at the accepted time and, and spending time with family or, or traveling with them and things like that. And it, to your point, it's almost surprising when you don't hear other people having those same definitions of success and what they're doing. Uh, so, and, and even just going back through, and if I can pull out some themes of your journey one I want to point out is it sounds like you're a pretty avid learner uh, for, for anything that you're doing. Now, obviously, for the software part, and that seems to be the basis um, of a lot of your success. But real estate, I got to imagine you were starting somewhere from the beginning, figuring out how it works, figuring out buying the properties, flipping if you're doing that for rehab, um, getting renters in, so on and so forth. Uh, and then another is luckily you're in software, which is something that you've always had an interest in, making the sort of corporate story even worse is if you're doing something you don't want to be doing because you think you're sacrificing passion for stability and then it still goes wrong, right? Are those some of the elements that you would say have really persevered in your journey? I've always been somebody who learns by the, the application of something or being put in a situation where I'm forced to learn. I'm not a book learner. I'm not a, I'm not an academic in any way, which is why I had so much trouble being any, anywhere near attentive at school. But if you put me in a situation where I can physically sense what is going on, 
I'm a sponge and I take it up and I, and I have this yearning to constantly be fed more stimuli like that. And that's part of the reason why I think I got into software because you never stop learning. You're always reinventing yourself all the time. Um, and I think because of that, I've learned business and the art of how it works from, from sales and marketing to finance to operations and, and management and all of the things that go in, in part about that because I was lucky enough to be exposed to that very young. What I did not learn, and I still am having a hard time relating to, is macroeconomics because I understand that if all you're doing is measuring your entire life's worth in a US dollar as a form of a currency, it's not a reliable measurement because it won't be worth the same amount of money 10 years from now. And secondly, it's it's a fleeting thing because, you know, the old adage, nobody cares how much money you've got on your day of your deathbed because it, it's not relevant what you'll – at that time, you look back on your life and you look at the high points and you look at the low points. And the way I look at it, the way I sum this all up at this point is that it doesn't matter how much money you've got. What it matters is that you do not have regrets. Regrets will kill you. If you go, to, if you go into retirement regretting things you did not do, you will carry that curse until the day you die. And I guarantee one thing, the older you get, the harder it is. You can't have regret. If you do that, you are, you, you're going to have an early, early death. It's just the way it is. You've got to be able to say, look, when I was 20, I went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Or when I was 30, I hot air ballooned across Buenos Aires. Or... When I was 40, I became a monk in a Buddhist monastery. I don't know whatever your calling is. You've got to find out what that is. You've got to seek out happiness from the earliest of ages because the, er the quicker you find what that thing is, the, the shorter, like the, the more time you're going to have to enjoy it. And if you don't seek that out because you sold your future out to a boss you hate and to an hour-long commute in traffic every day and to a cubicle that isn't comfortable, if that's what you did, you sold out to that, well, you're to blame, not the company that offered you this big paycheck or healthcare bonus or, or whatever. No, it's you because you went in there not having first defined what was happiness to you. And I've been trying to say that to my daughter. It doesn't matter what you get when you leave college. It doesn't even matter that you go into college. But your education starts the day you can walk outside and start a pursuit of finding out what makes you happy. Because the second that you graduate from that college, you graduate with honors and you're set for the rest of your life. But if you don't pursue that at an early age, you, you will live in regret and it will curse you. And it's horrible. So if anybody's listening to this and they feel that they don't know what they're doing in life and they haven't found their purpose and their mission and they're just going through the motions day after day because the bank wants their mortgage payment or the car loans or the credit cards or whatever, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Get rid of those things. You don't need to be owning things you don't need and spending money you don't have to own them. It's that simple.
But we've forgotten that. Everyone wants to scale up. Everyone wants to go to the moon. Everyone wants the Lambos. You don't want the Lambos. Do you know how much it costs to maintain one of those things? (laughs) I mean, seriously, it's not easy to park and they're bloody uncomfortable to drive. It's not worth it. You've got to throw that stuff aside and go for the stuff that's meaningful. Go for the relationships that matter and the kids you're raising and the, and the journeys you're on and the hobbies you might have or the, the garden you want to plant or the, the friends you want to have a beer with on the weekend. Those are the things that matter. And if you don't put them as priorities in front of the boss you hate and the job you hate, well, it's your fault. It's not the company's fault. It's your fault. You set yourself up for this. And then when you realize you got set up and you look back and you debrief, And you go, oh, geez, I've got student loan debt. Why did I go to college? I'm not even working in the field I studied in. Yeah, who made that decision? Well, you did, right? And then if you look at the credit card bills you got because you lost your job and you had to pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever, and you think, well, I didn't have any emergency savings. Well, whose fault is that? It's your fault. I mean, the problem is we defer ownership of our responsibilities just as we defer the responsibility of generating income to a counterparty who doesn't have your back. I, I, it doesn't, it boggles the mind to me that people don't take on that level of responsibility anymore. And I know it sounds like some old boomer talk, but it's not, it's generationally accurate. It doesn't matter whether you were born in the 1800s or the 1900s or the 2000s. It's the same story, the same record over and over again. It's the same thing. Don't spend money you don't have buying things you don't need to impress people you hate. If you just take that on board, you might have a chance. You might have a chance. Then it's up to you what you do with that, that beautiful God-given life that you've had, and, and that's what you do with your time. Well, that's on you, but just don't set yourself up for failure to begin with. Maybe even taking a couple other cliches and turning them around a, a, a little bit. I say to people sometimes is, look, if you're at a bar and do you think your day job is going to come up and be of interest to somebody that's not in the world that you're in? Or even more so, are you interested in it? <laughs> and if the answer is no, like that might be, you know, a sign uh, of of something that you may need to change. And then, of course, the other adage of nobody's on their deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time in the office, <laughs> right? That's not going to be the thing that makes you happy. And the other cliche you always hear in the sales world, right, is what's everybody's favorite thing to talk about themselves? Well, if you turn that around, that means they're really not paying as much attention to you as you think they are. (laughs) So you may be thinking you're impressing other people, but they're probably more interested in whatever they're doing to really care that much about what you're doing. So that also illustrates that you should be focused on what gives your life meaning and purpose. Uh, so I, I think you're, you're spot on there and a lot to be taken again from, from your story. Dare I say, let's talk some about the healthcare industry. That was one that we have reserved some time to compare. Uh, funny you mentioned uh, the Australian market. The reason I say that is I actually had an episode on the show uh, with a gentleman who is actually 
in the insurance industry in Australia. And we didn't get into all the nuts and bolts, but I learned way more about it than uh, I ever thought I otherwise would have as far as how the government plays a role and so on. So I was actually tracking with you a little bit more than maybe the average American was. Uh, talk about what your experiences have been being from location to location, dealing with your medical needs. And of course, uh, there's a lot to unpack in the US healthcare system. Well, as I mentioned, you know, my car accident I had in the 90s left me with a deformed shoulder that was pretty much no good. And then coming to America at the time, there was no, um, I was not eligible for any healthcare and they classed it as a pre-existing condition, which would be to be expected. So I've not been able to get any medical care to take care of uh, anything to do with my shoulder for decades. Um, I tried to maybe think that I could go back to Australia after all the dust had settled after we had a lawsuit with the government and I won that. But after all that was done, I thought possibly, you know, maybe I could get it done there. And then I found out that when you leave a country and you're no longer paying tax in that country, you're a non-resident for tax purpose, um, you lose your right to public health care that that country used to give you for free. And I didn't, I didn't know that. That was something I only learned probably only a couple of years ago. Um, I always had in the back of my mind that I could always go back to Australia and get my shoulder fixed now, right? Well, it, it, it doesn't work that way. I, I learned that up close and personal. My wife, uh, we were back there a few years ago visiting my wife's family and uh, she got um, like a bronchitis infection um, it was in the winter time, and she got this really bad cough, and we had to go to find a, a doctor, and no doctor would talk would talk to her um, because she didn't have any history with any of the physicians. So we ended up on the ER room, uh, you know, in the waiting room at the ER of the local hospital, and we went in, and and they, um, you know, heard the accent and said, "Oh, you're from Australia. Well, come on in. You're entitled to free healthcare." So we got it, we got it, and we left, and everything was fine. And about a year later. I get a bill in the mail for $700. I'm like, what, what's this? Well, that was that one-hour consult you had at the hospital, you know, a year before. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. We're, wasn't this supposed to be free? We're supposed to be part of some public health? No, you you don't pay taxes. You've got to pay, and you've got to pay this amount. I'm like, oh, really? So, anyway, I, I paid it, and it, it sort of told me, there's no healthcare for you going back to Australia, Miles. You're not part of the system. Meanwhile, friends of mine who were still living back there who were getting medical care, who were part of the system, were constantly complaining. Um, a friend of mine needed a hip replacement, and uh, it was actually his wife that needed it. She had a, a very – she was only about 40 years old. She needed to get uh, her hip, which was like turning into – the bone was like turning into jello. She was in constant, enormous pain. And she tried to get, she went to the hospital to try to get them to take care of this thing. And because it was coded as a hip replacement, they put her in the elective surgery area and said, yeah, there's a three-year waiting period before you can have that surgery. It won't cost you anything, but you've got to wait three years. Like, are you kidding me? She can't do this for three years. So in the end, uh, my buddy had to go, I think he went to Malaysia and got it done. And... um Knowing those sorts of stories, I ended up realizing that my own situation um, may need some sort of intervention. I about a year ago, I was uh, a little over a year ago. I was um, I woke up and uh, I had uh, 
uh, a really bad pain in my shoulder. I couldn't work out where it was coming from. And um, I just thought I, I freaked out because I realized that, you know, the the surgery they did was nearly well, 20 years old. It was over 20 years old. And maybe the, the what they did had like a life expectancy. You know, you hear about people who get like a, a knee replacement, they've got to get another one 15 years later or whatever. I thought maybe maybe that's what's going on here. And, and I'm at this point in time, I'm freaking out because it's like I can't get anything done here in the States. I can't go back to Australia and get it done. What am I going to do? Well, I've, I've got a lot of friends who are doctors and uh, they know me from all the financial stuff I do. So I was talking to them and they're like, yeah, sucks to be you, man. <laughs> like what? He <laughs> says, you don't want to know what goes on inside our medical system. Well, I said, I sort of know it because I write some software for that business, but um, are you telling me there's no way I can get this done? And a, a friend of mine in Southern California had said to me, look, I'm going to put you on to an orthopod and, you know, he'll just talk to you and he'll tell you as how, how it is. So I spoke to him and he got back to me and said, Look, you know, take some x-rays or, or I had some x-rays from a long time back. So I sent him over to him and he took a look at it and he comes back and he goes, well, you know, we could do this and you could pay for it. And, uh, you know, I practice at UCLA, so it's going to be a decent medical facility and all this sort of thing. Do you want me to get you a quote for getting this replaced? You know, we'll get a new prosthetic and, and you, you know, get your shoulder back to normal. And I said, sure, you know, do that. So, you know, a couple of days go by and then next thing you know, an email arrives from him with a quote uh, as to what he would, was saying. And he says, well, firstly, it's not very customary of us to quote anything in medicine, but, you know, and there's all these caveats, like as long as it doesn't have this or that, it doesn't become complicated, whatever, right? Right. Um, yep. $125,000. I'm like, are you kidding me? I can buy property for that. <laughs> I can buy rental property here. This is insane. $125,000. He said, yeah, it's about a five-hour procedure. I'm like, for five hours, in a, he says, it, we don't get that money. He said, that goes to the hospital and it goes to all the third-party insurance things and, and there's all, you know, facilities fees. And I'm like, this is insane. So we had, my wife and I had been spending a bit of time with all of this spare time we had over the years of, uh, you know, we spent a bit of time, we live in Arizona, so we're bordering with Mexico. We spent a lot of time going into Mexico, loved it, had great time. But, you know, we were doing touristy stuff like going to the beach communities and Puerto Vallarta and stuff like that. Well, we eventually um, discovered traveling in Mexico just because we thought this will be fun and we're both pretty intrepid, so we thought we'd do it. And um, we ended up finding ourselves in a little town uh, outside of Guadalajara in Mexico called Ajijic. And it's, an, it's predominantly known because it's an expat retirement community. So in Ajijic, I'm, I'm just walking around this beautiful town, old Spanish colonial town, and there's this town square and sitting in the town square is this old guy. And I realized he wasn't Hispanic. He was, he was just a, an American expat. And I sat down on the bench next to him. We started chatting and... I said, well, how'd you get here? And he told me his story and, and uh, he was telling me about the cost of medicine, how affordable it was. And uh, tell me more, right? So he's telling me the whole story. Anyway, the next thing you know, I'm back in Guadalajara. I found a uh, surgeon who could take a look at me. I went and consulted with him 
had x-rays done, the whole bit, and um, I'm sitting in his office and he looks at the x-rays and he's like going, oh, geez, look at this mess. I'm going to have to fix this mess. And so I said, look, Doc, you know, what do you think it's going to cost? And so he gets his calculator out and he's bunching these numbers together and the next thing he shows me this big number. And I mean, like, it was bigger than the US number. And I'm like, dude, I can't, what do you want, like $250,000 or something or whatever the number was, I can't remember. I'm like, I don't have this sort of money. You know, well, I, I can find it, I guess, but it's like, this is not, this is crazy. And he goes, oh, hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you in pesos. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought that's what you were, I hope that's what you were going to say at least. So, you know, peso was like 20 to 1 at the time. So he gets his calculator out and he converts it and he goes, $9,000. And I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, nine grand for that. And he's looking at me like that's expensive. <laughs> I'm going, you've got no idea. My deductible is le- is more than that. Um. And you're telling, but this is all the surgical team. This is anesthesiologists. This is the hospital. This is everything. And I said, what if things get complicated or something goes wrong? He goes, no, no, it's fixed price. I'm like, what? <laughs> so this guy comes highly recommended from all the guys in our heat, the retirement people. And I'm thinking, well, you know, their average age up there is like 65. They're all getting hip replacements and, you know, all that sort of thing. They're going to know a good, you know, orthopod, right? They're going to know. So I said, sign me up. So he says, all right, well, listen, since you're here, I'm going to go send you down for MRIs, like three doors down. And I'm thinking MRIs, like I, MRIs are like 4,000 bucks here. And I know that they're not always that price, but in my state, you know, they're expensive. And I'm thinking, well, she's okay. I go down, I get the MRI. I'm in the machine for like 30 minutes. He takes dozens and dozens of images. I come back out. How much? 270 US dollars. Okay. <laughs> Here you go. Have my credit card. Great. So we get this and he, and he go, I go back to his office and he looks at all the images, puts them up on his wall and he goes, Oh, I see while you're in pain. And I'm like, what, what, what do you see doc? You know, what's going on? And he goes, well, see this thing here. And he points to some sort of mass or whatever it is in there. He says, yeah. He said, that's a tumor. Mm. Wow. Oh, great. <laughs> He said, yeah, this went from I'd like to get this thing done to you're getting this thing done. Uh, Well, it was benign, thank God. But uh, at the end, it was like I would never have known. And I just – and so I ended up – I got the surgery done. It was the greatest experience I've ever had in a hospital in my life. Five-star private medical. It was so good. And the outcome was perfect. The prosthetic was perfect. Everything was done beautifully. I cannot say anything but amazingly good things about the quality of care. For a two-hour flight back from my home to Mexico was like, this is a no-brainer. There was nothing, not $1 over what he quoted in price. There were no gotchas or teasers. These guys are medical because they want to be medical. It's because that is their passion. That is their happiness. Their happiness is to serve others, not to try and become rich like that. And I, this is all I needed. And it took me having to go to a foreign country to find it. But I come back more with the it, – it's a wonderful outcome for a great story. But the most important thing that I can bring out of this is hope because 
I know you've probably got an somebody in your audience out there who's got some medical condition that is elective, but they've been putting it off because they can't afford it or they haven't got the insurance or they got laid off from their job and they've got no health care. And there's always some reason why this is becoming, you know, something or they can't afford time off work or whatever. All I can say is if you don't consider medical tourism as at least a reasonable option, and I get it, it's not for everybody. Some people have this thing in their mind that you go to Mexico and some cartel is going to chop your head off. It, it No. I'm, from my experience, and this is just me, over the mountain there are no dragons. It's not like the media tells you it is. At least it's not for what I do as a traveler. And my relationship with Mexico is very strong. In fact, we're just getting temporary resident visas down there because we're buying property in, in um, San Miguel in Mexico. And we're going to probably spend half of our life down there because I'm 55 years old. I don't have medical insurance here that can cover me for an adverse event. And I do, but I don't trust it. I mean, it's it's United Healthcare. It's supposed to be good and they're supposed to pay. But the number of times I hear stories when they don't or there's all these charges and, and there's a deductible and all this, and I'm like, you know what, I, if I was 65 and I had Medicare here, I might stay. But at, at my age, that little risk factor is too high. And, and I would also say for any of your audience that are on that sort of financial independence retire early journey and they decide they want to retire, will know that they're on the, on the hook for the healthcare at that point. And at this, at this stage, healthcare is not cheap. Uh, in Arizona, for a family of three, like in, in our case, it's fourteen hundred bucks a month. If you have Obamacare, it's like two thousand a month. I, I do always wonder if people realize: yes, the care's there. Yes, pre pre existing conditions shouldn't be an issue as far as getting coverage. But the amount you pay for these massive deductible plans uh, are still out there. I mean, uh, when you go on the exchange you're not getting like an HMO policy that has no deductible or really small deductible. There's still a lot that people are having to pay. Actually, as a matter of fact, when that was all first passing, I was hopeful that that would be the catalyst for people that otherwise had all of their financial things in order, but they were only working basically to keep their employer's health insurance. <laughs> that could be the thing to bridge the gap between whatever age they were and Medicare and from where my perspective is it did not fill that gap for the reasons you're talking about. I ended up looking at this and thinking, well, I came up with this idea of classifying medical into three categories. The, the first would be preventative, and that's the stuff that we can all do to try to live a, a healthier and, and a higher quality of life, like eat the right foods, go to the gym regularly, um, take vitamin supplements, you know, do yoga, whatever's good for you, you know, do that. And don't skimp on it because the one advantage you've got in that particular area is that you have the free market on your side. You can go and shop around for the cheapest gym membership or the right vitamins or the whatever. You've got power and control of choice there. And as a result, pricing is quite affordable. And the second section of this whole thing would be um, elective surgery. And they're the things that you have control over when you want to get it done, but you know you need to get it done. And 
you can pay for that yourself if you're willing to do things like what I did with medical tourism. Um, and I'm sure there are some facilities in the States that are affordable, but they're very hard to find. The industry doesn't want you to find them. You have to seek them out and be very, very diligent on how you do that. And then the final category of healthcare would be the adverse and chronic category where, you know, you've had a heart attack or you've had a car accident or you've, you're on a gurney somewhere and, you, you don't have choices at this point. You're not shopping around for the best doctor. You, you just patch me up, anybody, please, now. And, and you need care for that. The problem is that because we, we categorize all three under one umbrella and we don't call it health care, we call it health insurance, then what ends up happening is that the insurance industry is empowered to, to take away choice and to not abide by the rules of a free market in which you could go out and shop. They're telling you what you can get because you've got an all-encompassing policy. I I believe, and I guess this comes back to my whole theme of the way that I've done everything in my life, the buck stops on my desk and it's always stopped on my desk in regards to what I've done with my investments, what I've done with my business and my responsibility over my obligations for debt, but it's also over my body. And at the end of the day, if I take that power back and I use the choices of the free market and I seek out where the best deals are, I can guarantee I'm going to be okay. And for anybody who is in that position where um, their employer is not paying for their health care, and what people often forget is the cost, the average cost in the United States for a health care policy for an employee um, is about $19,700 a year for those premiums. If they had that money in their paycheck and they were empowered to go and shop for their health care for at least for the first two of the three categories, they could find deals and prices could get brought down dramatically. But what we're doing is we're treating all forms of health care as if it was an adverse condition and we're therefore deferring everything to a counterparty, in this case the insurance company, to actually go out on our behalf and negotiate. And again, like a corporation that is your employer or like a government that doesn't have the resources to be able to provide you the the care you expected, you're now using another counterparty to be there and hoping for the best that they will cover you. Well, I don't need to tell you the number of example stories of people who who went and had something thinking they were insured and then found they got a, a half a million dollar bill and went bankrupt. I mean, the highest rates of bankruptcy in the United States are coming from medical bankruptcy. So it's clearly there. What I'm trying to say is don't don't categorize everything into the one umbrella a solution. It's not. There are three parts of this and you need to have a strategy for all three. I am definitely an advocate for being an advised consumer. Just like in your experience, what other industry do you have no idea what the cost of something is going to be until after it happens? And granted, yeah, with a surgery, they may not know what they find until they get in there. I get that to some extent, but I mean, the, the, Costs can be such a wide range that it's just unreasonable to, in good conscience, say to somebody that you can be an informed consumer because, to your point, the system is not really set up 
to allow you to be an informed consumer. Actually, I seem to remember this really small period of time, actually, I think right before the Affordable Care Act went through where the flexible spending accounts and the consumer-driven policies that went along with them seemed to be gaining a lot of steam. I remember thinking at the time, maybe this will be what the future is. So it encourages people to have more of an understanding about where their dollars are going and then hopefully the consumers are dictating the market rather than the insurance companies and so on. I'm not necessarily saying that the Affordable Care Act was something that blurred those lines there, but it certainly didn't take hold as much as I originally thought that it might be able to. And also, I want to call out your comparison of Australia's healthcare um, compared to U.S., compared to uh, the privately held uh, providers and so on. Because I do think to some extent, I'm speaking in generalities, that folks in the U.S. can sometimes paint a broad brush of what government-run healthcare might be. And because my mind, I will be honest, does go to like those wait times or other restrictions that might be out there. Sometimes I've even said, well, you know, as much as we hate the insurances and so on, I almost feel like it's better to hate a public entity that's not the government because <laughs> it seems like, gosh, we hate the government for so many other things. <laughs> Do we want to add something else that we're going to hate them for <laughs> if it's uh, if it's universal right. or something like that? So I, I think that to some extent, uh, the American population doesn't quite realize maybe what some of the trade-offs would be if it was exactly like another system. Uh, and then again, right on as far as people being as informed as consumers as they possibly can. I, I, I imagine, and probably me included, there's a little bit of a hesitance of international care. Like you mentioned, people probably have a certain image in their head of what Mexico may or may not have and what they're going to get. Did you happen to have anybody in like a U.S. doctor look at your shoulder after the uh, – surgery was completed saying, yep, all good or anything like that? I did. I uh, Because I, I wasn't going to stay in Mexico for my physical therapy. I had to do about three months of that. And I got to know my physical therapist very, very well, who is a practicing physician. And he had me do x-rays and look – well, I brought back the x-rays from the um, – when I went back down there to see my physician to as a follow-up, I had x-rays done and I brought them back and I showed them to him. And he looked at it and he was, and this is a guy who spent all of his life looking at people's injuries because this is all he does. He's a therapist, right? And he looked at it and he's like, wow. He said, I haven't seen this level of quality in years. And I thought, really? He said, yeah, the, the quality of the prosthetic was built perfectly. And I know it was built down there because when we had, um, uh, had the work done when, when I scheduled the hospital visit, the date of the hospital, I had to um, consent a few days before for them to order the prosthetic that would size correctly for me. And they did all of that ahead of time so that it was ready and brought to the theater uh, the day that I was you know, going to get this done, obviously. And everything just went perfectly. It was great. Um one thing I did, I spoke to a lot of the doctors down there. So here, here's a couple of things which I did not expect that I learned. Anybody who goes to university in Mexico in the medical field is taught English. 
So there's no issue with language barriers here because every physician and usually every nurse and every every person who's probably looking after you can speak English quite well, <laughs> like very, very well. So there's no issue with communications. That was number one, which I was not expecting to find. Um, number two, I spoke to my doctor afterwards about the philosophy of care in Mexico. And the one thing they, they have down there is this concept of what they would call la familia, which is the family, that when you're taken in the care of somebody in any form, whether it's the taxi driver driving you somewhere, the guy serving you food at a restaurant, or the doctor who's taking you under their care, they put you in a category where they treat you like their uncle, like you're a part of their extended family, and they're not going to let you get hurt because they wouldn't let their uncle get hurt. And that was really amazing to understand that as part of Latin culture is to do that. And then the final thing which I learned down there, which was surprising, was that uh, I was having a chat with my doctor and he was telling me that one of the things that's interesting about the medical system in Mexico is that it's a hybrid between the US system in terms of technique and skills and so on, which are all brought in, and also the European system. And he had said to me that a lot of the stuff that they're doing are practices that are coming out of Germany and being fused in with practices that are US-centric, whereas those practices are never done in the United States because either they're, they're culturally uh, rejected for some reason, they don't get coded properly on a HICFA form, or they are just sort of – they're just unusual. People almost consider them to be – different techniques. And yet in Latin America, they take a fusion of US and European standards together. And that is what's taught. And um, it works. I mean, I'm, I'm proof of it. Now, I'm, not, I'm one case. I have one procedure. I'm one guy. I'm not representative of entire industry. But not many people like me seem to be out there talking about this. And um, it's funny, I, I, I was uh, on another uh, podcast a year or so ago talking about this. Uh, actually, no, a year ago. It wasn't that long ago. Um, and one of the hosts had told me that after the show had aired, somebody wrote in uh, having heard my story and they were telling their story and it was, I mean, it literally brought tears to my eyes because they were trying to have a baby and they couldn't have a baby and they couldn't afford the um, uh uh, the, the fer fertility thank treatments. You. Thank yep. you. Yes. Fertility treatment because they couldn't have a kid. And, and I remember when we, when we have one daughter and we actually wanted to have another child, but my wife is older than most. And we were having a hard time, uh, having, you know, getting pregnant for a second baby. And we ended up spending like 10 or $15,000 per month per cycle for her to go to a doctor in California to try to get facility treatment and it didn't work. And we could afford maybe three months of that and that was it and we're out. And so we have one daughter, which is great. I mean, I, I'm blessed, right? I'm not complaining. But at the same time, these people had written into the show and they said that they could not have a child, but somebody told them to go to Czech Republic, to Prague, which, by the way, I've been there many times. It's a beautiful city. And, but they went to Czech Republic to have the services done and it cost them 
something like $4,000 for everything over a six-month period, and they have now two beautiful twins. It's like I, I listen to this story, and I'm like, well, those kids wouldn't have been born if they were here. They wouldn't have had that family. They wouldn't, you know, be blessed with that, and yet they had to go overseas to get it, and they got it done. I mean, this is if you if you can't get something done here, don't stop, don't give up, because there's always a solution. The question is how bad you want it. Even on a, a different way of thinking about it, it goes into what you were describing for what I'll say is controlling your own destiny of. It's you making your decisions. We were talking about career and things to do before and in healthcare, it probably does feel like you're more constrained, but you don't necessarily have to be. And dare I say also for the standard American, uh, what's the stereotype? We don't really see much outside of our own world, <laughs> globally speaking. Um, there is quite literally a whole world out there. Uh, so that's something else just to keep in mind. I would also add to it that um, I have tried all through my life to steer clear of the um, the politics of the US because it's not something that I was raised with and I don't understand politics as a sporting event because that's kind of what I see this like red versus blue team on team, you know, one man, two go into the ring, one comes out kind of attitude. It's like... Uh, that's not really helping. And I think what's happening is that people are somehow associating personal responsibility for everything, that finance and medicine and everything else, with government, either government intervention or government non-intervention. And the reality is they're entirely different animals. You know, you weren't born to be a Democrat or a Republican or a whatever. You weren't born into that. You were born to be you, a human being. And if you're loyal to you first, and look, don't get me wrong, I took, you know, citizenship in this country voluntarily. It wasn't bestowed upon me by birth. I stand in front of a judge and I swore on the Bible that, you know, I'll uphold the Constitution. So I'm a willing participant of the United States. That's why I'm still here. But I don't try to become part of the politic because I realize that the solutions that are out there for all of us at the individual level, at the human level, are not helped by the state in any way. And I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Neither is going to help you live a better life in, in that way. Neither is going to give you that child you've always wanted. Neither is going to fix your shoulder, right? One way or another, it's on you. And if we just realize that we are the government. We are the citizens of our country, not some guy on a TV show or, or some person in a podium in a debate. It, it's, that's, they're not relevant. It's us. And if we can just come together and realize that we're our own best uh, source of support and we're our own brother's keeper too, and we can look after our neighbors and we can live in that sort of communal environment where everybody wins because we're all working together and sharing what we know and sharing what we've learned, we've got a chance here. And I particularly notice this in healthcare because people are thinking that even having a discussion about healthcare is like some sort of liberal agenda or some sort of government thing. It's not. It's about your life. 
the length of it and the quality of it. And it's your life. It's not their life. You've got to take control of this. I think that's a great sentiment to end with. Uh, And I could continue talking about this and many other things with you, I know, uh, for a long time. But uh, stop us there. Um, Miles, do you want to go ahead and give... Uh, your contact information, information about your website, if people can find you on social media, maybe any events, anything else you'd like to let our audience know about? I put all of these ramblings into various forms. The first is a, a website I run called beunconstrained.com. And you can go there and read my articles and, and all of that. I do a, a podcast every week called the Unconstrained Podcast, in which I talk to I talk about these kinds of topics at length, and I also invite thought leaders uh, in the space to come in and talk about their area of expertise, um, and you're certainly welcome to, to follow that. There's also links on our website to a YouTube channel, which I have, that has various interviews I've done with uh, thought leaders and so on. I don't do that much on YouTube. It's mainly the podcast and the website. But, but yeah, be un- beunconstrained.com. Go there and uh, enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Perfect. And, of course, I will put all of your information into the show notes to make it easy for our folks to find you. Uh, Miles, I really appreciate you being on the show and we'll be in touch. Wonderful. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thanks for listening.